Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to the third episode of our new series of DNVGL Talks Energy. The series focuses on the impact of COVID-19 on the energy transition, exploring how the energy industry, business and society are responding to the global pandemic and the role that policy, investment and technology is likely to play as the world seeks to recover. Our guest today is Bob Perchesapi, President of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for inviting me, everyone. Bob, uh, it's great to have you on, and I have briefly talked about the topic we want to discuss today. But before we go into this, it would be great if you could give us a bit more background about you as a person, as well as about the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Okay, well, I'll try to give you the 25 cent version of that. The Center for Climate and Energy Solution is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization in the in the U.S. Uh, we do work around the world. Uh, where we are generally called a think tank, but we work with businesses, with local governments, and also with federal governments. We do some convening of countries around uh, implementing the Paris Agreement, and we publish reports and try to. Uh, and educate and get policymakers more attuned to all the different options and ideas uh, surrounding clean energy and climate change. As for me, I've been doing this for six years. Before that, I was the deputy administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for six years before that in the Barack Obama administration in the U.S. And then before that, I was the chief operating officer for the National Audubon Society, which is a a global wildlife conservation organization. Very good. Very interesting. Thank you. But I want to start with a more like personal question. The COVID-19 pandemic is a truly era-defining moment and it's having an impact on every aspect of everyone's lives nearly. How has COVID-19 changed the way you approach your work? Well, the Center for Climate Energy Solutions has been operating completely remotely. All of our employees have their own company computers. Uh, we have a variety of communication technologies we use. We've run webinars. We've run meetings. We have staff meetings every week. We communicate with each other in an ongoing fashion with a variety of different technologies. And so we've continued full bore uh, during the pandemic. And in, in many ways, uh, being a small nonprofit NGO, we were very used to flexible work schedules. Since people do research and uh, do writing, uh, we often say, all right, work home for a couple of days and, and just keep keep connected through our, our, our various technologies. And so it has been a little bit of a challenge to switch to be completely remote, everybody, and we all miss seeing each other in the office, but we've been also uh, having social hours on the on the computer. And so uh, we try to keep a little bit of uh, that socializing as well as, as the work. Yes, <laughs> perfect. We have virtual coffee machine meetings in our organization. It works quite well. Um, Bob, as you have earlier alluded to uh, in your introduction, um, you have worked at the heart of the U.S. government, uh, influencing their environmental and energy policy. And uh, of course, you're working there with some predictions of what the future holds and where it should go. But one scenario I believe no one 
had in mind a couple of months ago was the drastic decline of the global energy demand as it has been caused by COVID-19. How do you think global policymakers are thinking about the COVID-19 crisis at its impact on global energy demand today, but also uh, looking forward? Like predicting when something like this would happen, predicting how it will end is more of an art form than a science, although it's informed by science. So we know that you know eventually uh, we will develop immunities and somebody will develop vaccines and, and eventually we will get back to a normal operating. But in the meantime, on a global scale, countries all over the world have issued uh, stay-at-home orders. Uh, they have shut down uh, areas where a lot of people congregate. This is starting to ease a little bit. Um, but that has had a, a profound impact. It's almost like turning everything off suddenly as opposed to a gradual decline in the economy. So we basically shut off the economy in, in most of the developed world. And so there's going to be an unprecedented global drop in GDP. There's going to be an unprecedented global drop in jobs. Uh, and along with that, an unprecedented sudden drop in energy consumption and with that carbon emissions. So uh, these things are happening um, and uh, we're starting to see how people are predicting how that might look on, on an annual basis. I think uh, the International Energy Agency has predicted probably a decline of 8% on global carbon emissions this year. And in the U.S., we, we think it could drop uh, almost 11%. You have mentioned just now the shutdown of economies, at least in the developed world. Um, on the other hand, we are seeing now many governments uh, which are getting uh, kind of into this mood of they want to open up again. And we are seeing kind of unprecedented interventions from policymakers in terms of stimulus measures around the world to help keep business and economies afloat or to get them going again. So in your view, is there the possibility and the appetite of decision makers to approach these stimulus measures in ways that also help the progress of the energy transition? I think the first thing we need to recognize uh, while we're seeing these Uh, changes in the economy and from that changes in emissions and energy consumption, you know, we have to recognize that millions of people are, are suffering, uh, not only from getting the disease themselves, but also from job loss or temporary job loss. We have tens of millions of people globally that are in an economically Uh, constrained situation with their jobs. And so the first thing that most governments had to do, and, and the United States is no different, is is prepare immediate relief. In, uh, in, in the U.S., we've had a, a program called the Payroll Protection Program, where uh, loans are given to small businesses uh, to pay for their actual payrolls for several months to get carry them through this pandemic, bolstering uh, the unemployment insurance program, and then actual checks to individuals uh, to help uh, you know with rent payments or or buying food. And so uh, that immediate influx of of support has been aimed at immediate relief and immediate uh, support for first line workers uh, in the medical 
and public health uh, arena as well as uh, others. So that is what has been happening for the most part. Most governments, and the United States is no different here, are beginning to think about what will be that longer term recovery approach. Uh, Once we get through the immediate uh, suffering and try to mitigate that, then the question is, is there something long term that needs to be done to throw the switch back on? And how quickly can that happen? So yes, those conversations are starting uh, in the US and I think in most of the world, but the immediate uh, relief has been aimed specifically at retaining jobs, mitigating the impact of job loss, helping the the healthcare workers, and then providing some support down to the individual and family level. So it's the next stimulus part, which will have some opportunity to look at how we recover and can we recover in a way that helps uh, the long-term issues like pollution and climate change, but also other issues like job creation. Yeah, to, to go maybe a little bit deeper on this, I mean, latest since COP21, climate change had become this kind of mainstream topic covered by media and has drawn a lot of attention from governments, but especially also from the public. And not long, actually, before COVID-19, we had arrived at the sense of the emergency, that there's a high potential that we are actually already looking at a kind of climate emergency. So when we look at the Paris Agreement, when we look at the Green New Deal in the US, uh, you think they are jeopardized or they are just a bit delayed? I've been very encouraged that at least in the US, uh, American businesses, but also some of these businesses are global businesses, have continued to work on uh, climate and sustainability issues. Since the pandemic has been declared, we have seen major companies, including some uh, that are headquartered in Europe, like Shell, but also in the US, some of the power companies like Duke Energy in the mid-Atlantic area, uh, a major electricity provider, PSEG, a a company which was hard hit by uh, the pandemic. We see these companies declaring further ambition on climate reduction during the pandemic. Now, this to me indicates very strongly that while we're in this situation, we also have uh, a business community globally now that has really come to recognize that they have to change over the next 20 to 30 years. And they are trying to find that balance between maintaining some momentum on that while at the same time having to deal with the direct and immediate impacts of the pandemic. And so I I see they are moving in that direction to try to keep their eye on both of these issues and not completely abandoning it. Now, on a government side, I think it's a mixed bag. I think many governments have uh, put aside thinking about uh, the long-term Uh, issues like climate change while they're trying to deal with the immediate loss of revenue, loss of jobs, uh, constituents that are very worried about the future, either because they they don't see the impacts of this pandemic directly affecting them, others who see it directly affecting them even greater. That's creating uh, political divisions in some countries. And so many public officials and policymakers are, are focusing on those tensions now 
as opposed to thinking about the, the long term. But I, I have some optimism that the, the world is going to be able to deal with these things together. And while we must deal with the immediate, we can do it. And as we start to recover, we can do it in a way that furthers both goals, uh, economic recovery, as well as thinking about recovering in a way that will improve the outlook for success on, on dealing with climate change issues. Yeah, and I think the good sign indeed is that we saw an increase in renewables in the in the first couple of months in, in 2020, uh, and, and that going forward despite the energy demand dropping, which is kind of drawing to the point you just made about the private uh, sector companies. Um, one thing which is a concern, I think that not only because of COVID-19, uh, but also in that sense, we see uh, the world not necessarily standing together everywhere, which was one thing uh, you just mentioned that they some in some parts do, but uh, we also see very different developments in different parts of the world. So we had that issue already on the energy transition front, where, for example, in Southeast Asia, countries are reacting in a different way uh, to this emergency than others. But putting this together with COVID-19, we see that the developed world and the developing world uh, is very differently affected by both, actually, the potential impact of climate change, but also the impact of COVID-19. So what has to happen to not get even a further divide here? Well, I think in many ways, we've been globally pushed into a position with the pandemic where we see these different outlooks on, on how to solve or deal with issues globally. And we see them laid bare by the differential impacts uh, or responses to, uh, to a global pandemic. Those are the same kinds of, of different outlooks uh, that also are brought to bear on a much more slower uh, track uh, crisis like climate change that unfolds over the next several decades as compared to over a couple of weeks. And we see uh, a lot of uh, differential response to climate change around the world uh, in terms of, of how people see how quickly or how urgent it is that we need to do something about it. So I think we can see those, those differential approaches exposed in the global response uh, to the pandemic. And we can see that even manifested in individual countries like the UK and, and the US in terms of how they're different different approaches regionally or different outlooks regionally. So I I think it's, it's helpful to see that. I think it's, it's also mindful that even though we have all those differential uh, views and approaches that the the world is moving forward to deal with the pandemic we have implemented globally measures that have undoubtedly reduced uh, the impact uh, not completely we could have done a better job globally and we can continue to do a better job but there's been a coming together over looking for vaccines there's been a coming together on best practices to socially isolate while we try to move forward with a way to, to deal with this. And I think you can take some lesson from that on climate change is that what we what we are also seeing globally with the Paris Agreement uh, and with other uh, renewable energy developments uh, that, that that continues. I mean, we ex we're expecting and I think others uh, are predicting, including the International Energy Agency, that 
um, we're going to have a continued growth in uh, renewables uh, this year. Uh, it may not be quite as high as everybody had expected, but it's still going to increase the amount of renewable energy globally by five to six percent. And and while we have an immediate problem with some of these industries with job loss and disruption of supply chains, there is a continued underlying forward momentum. I mean, just looking at the projections that are currently out there from Bloomberg New Energy Finance on the sale of electric vehicles uh, this year, uh, they're expecting the sales of electric vehicles to drop 18% from last year. But the internal combustion engine uh, sales of vehicles are expected to drop by 23%. So there is a undertow of continued progress, regardless of, uh, of these differential uh, responses. Thanks for that, Bob. I would like to uh, go a bit deeper on another dimension, behavioral change. We have talked about the drop in energy demand as a result of COVID-19 a little earlier, and subsequently, as a result of this drop in energy demand, we have also seen a drop in CO2 emissions. Uh, it has been predicted, though, that as people begin returning to work and vehicle use increases again, CO2 levels could return to the same levels as before or even become higher. So how do we avoid that happening and encourage lasting behavior change? Uh, there is something that's going on here that I think will uh, just, uh, I'm just giving you an example of something that could have a, a profound change, uh, particularly in the developed part of the world in the post-pandemic period. What I mentioned to you at the beginning of our discussion here that my small uh, nonprofit or a non-governmental organization, we have been working remotely, i.e. not driving to the office or not taking buses to the office for over two months, and we have continued to operate successfully. Now, I'm not saying that that is something we should do forever, but I think most Uh, CEOs of major corporations, particularly with the knowledge base part of their employees, are going to recognize and probably provide more tools for more remote uh, working. There's always been a hesitancy to adopt these measures uh, or to allow these flexibilities, but I think people are seeing that productivity uh, and, and success can continue. And so I, I'm going to guess that I shouldn't guess, but I'm going to suspect that there will be a part of the mobile workforce that will reduce its commuting time. And so I think there alone, as we recover, and again, we dropped quickly, but I think we'll recover slowly over the next year, year and a half. As that recovery takes place, I believe that You know, the measurement in automobiles is called vehicle miles traveled. I, I think the vehicle miles traveled will decline. I mean, it's going to go back up, but it will, won't go back up to where it was. I think this is something that, we will, that we've learned from this pandemic and something that I, I believe will stay, will stay with us in the economy. I, I've heard some CEOs predict that, you know, some of their maybe 10% of their workforce may not, may not come back to the office at all. So this is one thing I'm pointing to. And I think when, when all is said and done, the global oil demand is, is likely to never recover to where it was. And I think that alone is a piece of, of how we start dealing with some of the emissions. Not only do we need to continue to work on 
you know, electrifying uh, surface transportation and, and buildings uh, as part of a larger global strategy. But what I think we're going to also see now is a continued decline in the demand for, for oil, certainly not going back to where it was. Yes, and coming back to the role businesses play in these times by still going on with decarbonization, I would like to come back also to the role of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Uh, since you are working closely with these leading companies, you are mentioned to find uh, pathways to uh, decarbonization. I would be interested if you see kind of different priorities in, in the light of COVID-19, in the light of, of climate change, in the different industry sectors. Would you have some examples there? We're sort of split a little bit uh, in how we're approaching this. Before the pandemic, we were working very closely with stakeholders, uh, local governments, state governments, uh, and, and major businesses on what would their pathways be to getting to net zero carbon emissions in the middle of the century. And we produced a report in November called Getting to Zero, a U.S. Climate Agenda. We had three dozen uh, companies involved with those discussions, and it laid out a, a host of policies and directions to take that would give the companies confidence that they can achieve a net zero if there was supporting public policy in place. And therefore, then they we would build... Uh, support in the business community for advocating for those policies. And we're, in this month, even in our remote working, we've been getting companies together with key members and their staff uh, uh, in Congress talking about these approaches as the Congress starts to think about a longer term uh, stimulus. So we've made a little bit of a pivot there as, a comp as, a, as an NGO Uh, to be able to look at, all right, we know there's some long-term stuff that we've been working on that are oriented toward climate policy. Which one of those ideas can can really help now in recovery and so that when the recovery is underway, that and if there is federal spending uh, to facilitate it, that spending is done in a way that's, that is aligned with or on the pathway to helping different businesses become decarbonized in the future. You know, things like uh, the, the grid, the, the electric grid, and making sure that it has more uh, resilience to it, uh, you know, battery technologies, uh, infrastructure for charging uh, vehicles, uh, all of these kinds of things that can create jobs right away, but at the same time carry us on the path to uh, a more confident, decarbonized future. So in our NGO, we're trying to say we can't lose track of that long term. We can't lose track of that, and companies need to keep their eye on that. And when we talk to companies, we try to help them see their own pathway. But on the other hand, there is an opportunity here, as we do start to look at recovery, to perhaps make some progress along that path. Bob, talking about investment and investment opportunities in renewable energy and decarbonization technology, where would you see the greatest investment potential around the world? I think a portfolio approach to investing in clean energy would be in anybody's interest. If you have a firm belief, and we all need to have this, that the world needs to decarbonize in the next 20 to 40 years, 
then there's a host of technologies, whether it be wind energy or solar, carbon capture for some industrial sources that can't be run on uh, renewable energy or for natural gas turbines that might still be around or making hydrogen if we're going to use hydrogen for either transportation or generating electricity or storing energy seasonally for uh, powering uh, the grid. Uh, all these different technologies that you, you've heard of, and maybe even uh, advanced nuclear, more modular nuclear plants for large industrial operations or more uh, remote areas in the world that uh, need we need to bring their uh, quality of life up. Uh, their electricity is going to be a key component of that. Uh, if you we're going to invest, you would want to invest in that portfolio. Um, companies and, and practices that are geared toward all of those different factors. Because I say portfolio because it is possible that some of them will go faster and some will go slower and some may not, not survive uh, looking forward. But at this stage of the game, we need to be moving all of those ideas forward. We need to have all of these uh, things invested in now. And, and many governments are looking at this broader portfolio. It's certainly what we recommended in our report last year. I, I would characterize it as a technology inclusive pathway that you would not say we can only, this is the only way to solve the climate problem. It's going to be multifaceted. We may have hydrogen fuel cells in cars. We may have batteries in cars. The cars are going to be electric motors. So electric motors would be a great thing to invest in. Thank you for these interesting insights, Bob. I have one final summarizing question for you. What lessons do you think we can learn from the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic in order to transition faster together to a clean energy future? Yeah, we talked about that a little bit earlier, but I, I guess the, the biggest takeaway is that, you know, and again, this is the glass is half full or the, the glass is half empty. But if I look at it as the glass half full, which is usually what I do, it's half full because the globe did respond. It did respond. Things were done virtually everywhere to try to reduce the spreading of the virus. If I'm a glass half empty, I could say it was not enough and we, we needed to do more and, uh, and we should have done more faster. Well, that same situation exists with climate change. We're no longer in a situation where people are saying we don't need to do anything. And the glass is half full because we have that recognition. We have large major corporations making major commitments. We have many governments implementing policies, even in the United States, which doesn't have a very active federal government at this time on climate change issues. You know, we've been able to reduce our greenhouse gases. We've been able to implement certain measures. Uh, the economics of uh, energy in the U.S. are pushing a decline in carbon emissions from electric generation. We have uh, automobile industry investing in a large way in electric motor-driven uh, surface transportation. China and the U.S. And, and Europe are major markets for these cars. They're not going to go away. So from a glass half full, all that is going on. And in a glass half empty, it's not enough. So in a way, that is what characterized our response to the virus. Uh, we, we certainly globally responded. Uh, some could argue it was not enough. So I think the lesson is that we just have to keep pushing here and that we need policies that are going to help. I'll call it, if you're in a, in, into sailing, putting wind in the sails uh, of some of these directions that are already happening. 
you know, with the investments of companies, with the changing economics of, of different energy sources, the, the fact that uh, renewables have become very competitive uh, price-wise, uh, the fact that we learn from the, from the virus response that people will see they may not need to drive to work as much as they used to, and we may be able to reduce the amount of emissions from cars even in the near term uh, by not using them as much. So uh, I, I think all these things are there. I'm a, a glass is half full kind of guy. I noticed that with the exception of the United States, uh, no other country has said we're going to pull out of the Paris Agreement. So for me, that the glass is, you know, 80% full there. So, and, uh, you know, that's not a sustainable long-term position for the United States anyway. So uh, there you go, glass half full. Thank you very much for these highly interesting insights, Bob. It was great to have you. And thank you also to the listeners for joining us. That was Bob Purchasapi, president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.